This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Cat Armis, welcome to Viral Jesus. I wrote about it and I said, hey, like I'm leaving this sort of field of thought and this theological space um, because of this, 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 this. And it sort of just exploded. Um, and it's, it's sort of in a good way, but not in a great way. Like a lot of people were very angry with me. Um, I got a ton of like hate messages, you know, the whole nine. Um, I was called a heretic, you know, and all, all the things. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. As a professor of communication, and now I'm at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan, my favorite thing to do when I am not talking about faith and evangelism is to break down theories in communication. A great theory to use as a backdrop for the conversation we're going to have today is muted group theory. Muted group theory says that some groups are more constrained in conversations because they have to learn how to speak the dominant group's language. This is because language was made by dominant groups. Some research would suggest women are a muted group. So, for example, men retain the title of Mr. their whole lives, while women are divided into Miss and Mrs. Your very identity is categorized by whether or not you have a man beside you. Another example is how when we talk about, let's say, sexuality, we typically talk about women's sexuality in negative terms. We say things like, she's a promiscuous woman. But when we talk about men's sexuality, it's typically spoken of positively. We'll say, he's a stud or a ladies' man. Maybe a woman in the workplace would have to listen to language being translated into masculine metaphors. Somebody might say, well, you just need a level playing field. This very metaphor is drawn from competitive sports, something that historically is an experience more familiar to men than women. And this disparity exists in theology as well. If we don't learn from women writers and speakers, the very voice and identity of how we see theology and how we see God becomes muted of female voices. Our guest today is someone who knows a thing or two about theology and highlighting the voices of the marginalized. Today, we talk to Kat Armis. Kat Armis is the author of the book, Abuelita Faith. She is also a second generation Cuban who is on fire for the gospel and theology student at Vanderbilt University. Kat's book combines personal storytelling with biblical reflection and makes us wonder if those often dismissed have more to teach us about following God than we realize. So something I love to do, Kat, when I have people on is always read to them one of either their Instagram posts or a tweet that they've done. And so here's, I'm going to read one of your tweets right now that I think honestly really encapsulates a lot of your social media game. All right. So I want you to respond to it and just tell me what you think about what you've written here. You say this, the Bible is a nuanced account of the outworking of life, faith, and the human experience. If scripture doesn't shy away from stories and questions thereof, 
have that are real and raw and difficult, then neither should we when we engage with it. So tell me, how do you connect this thought here to kind of how you are online and also in your writing and blogging? Yeah, I do want to start by saying I absolutely adore the Bible. And and I say that because it is so complicated and so complex and so beautiful and so interesting and so much to, there's so much to glean from it and wrestle with it. Um, and something that I had, you know, that is so common in our culture and is to simplify things, simplify faith or simplify scripture. Um, you know, this is the meaning of this passage, right? Um, or, you know, we try and get to the one thing, the one nugget that we're trying to pull out. Um, but man, the Bible is not that right. I mean, you can read something one week, you know, a week later, a year later, 10 years later, and you know, as we know, different things will stick out, but, and and not just that, I mean, the stories are stories of survival, right? I mean, these are people trying to literally just make it to the next day, not get killed, right? Right. I mean, these are stories of, um, you know, empire and stories of loss and stories of immigration and stories of, there's so much going on in the stories in scripture. Um, And so when we look at that and, and we can see like the outworking of faith and how faith exists in the midst of survival, how women, you know, at times have to use their bodies in order to, you know, um, make certain things happen their way. Right. And God blesses that. Like Mm. it's really complicated, (laughs) you know? And so I, I love to, you know, when you really get into the nuance of these stories, you realize like, man, this is life. Like life is really complicated. Um, it's not simplistic. Connecting with God is not just, you know, in a, in a Bible study alone, right? I mean, of course you can connect with God in the Bible study, but there's so many ways to connect with God. So that's something that, you know, as I started writing and as I started um, really digging into, um, you know, obviously I, I'm in academia and so I study the Bible, you know, exegetically and I dig through, you know, whatever, but also just devotionally, I'm realizing that, you know, people don't want simple answers. Mm. They don't want the same old, you know, oh, this is what that means. And this is this, you know, people want to wrestle. They want to wrestle with survival. They want to wrestle with these real life issues that scripture doesn't shy away from, (laughs) you know, scripture doesn't shy away from sexuality and these difficult um, circumstances. You know, I think of the midwives and how they lied to Pharaoh in order to save Moses. Yeah. It just forces us to wrestle in real life. And so as I just sort of, you know, sort of started wrestling out loud in my writing and in my tweeting, um, it really resonated with a lot of folks. People were like, yeah, that's true. You know, um, yeah. life is about a lot of it is survival. So I want to yeah. second that, that you have really resonated with people. I was telling Kat before we started recording that my intern was going through all of her social media as we were preparing for this episode. We do a deep dive on everybody who comes on and she was, and she's like a, a pretty conservative gal. And she was like, I, she said, Heather, cat is fire. I she literally wrote me all these notes as she wrote the question. She was like, I love her. Our um Aww. producer actually for the show, Ed Gilbreth, you were one of the ones he sent me a private message and said, I want cat, I'm gonna say her name and I, I want her to repeat it for me because I'm gonna ruin it because I can't roll my R's. But Kat Armis, how do you pronounce it correctly? Yes. Yes, Cat Armas is great, but I'll, yeah, in Spanish it's Armas, so Cat Armas. But yes, Cat Armas is also yeah. great. You got it. <laughs> so people have just really connected with you, and I want to really underscore that. Actually, first, tell us our, your educational background for those who don't know. 
Yeah, so I'm actually starting um, right now at Vanderbilt, um, just an advanced master's degree. Just that Vanderbilt, I just no big deal. You know, <laughs> you see how humbly she says that. <laughs> um, but I also have uh, two masters from Fuller, a master of theology and a master of divinity. So yeah. Representing women well. I want to read another tweet that you did. You say this, today I read the story in Genesis about the rape of Dinah, and I paused and sat in it for a long while. Too many times in evangelical circles, I was trained to zip right through stories like these without any emotion or any questioning. So let me ask you, how can you, or maybe you you do this, how do you inspire people to kind of sit with those very uncomfortable stories in scripture and stories that actually make our faith in a loving God very complicated? How do you encourage people to sit with that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think I'm figuring it out too, right? Mm. <laughs> because as I wrote in that post, you know, we're, we are taught to zip through things that are uncomfortable, not just in the Bible, but just in general in our culture, right? You know, obviously um, that comes with privilege that you can zip through things and not sit with it. Um, and so I think that that's something that we've, you know, but God is still good, right? Like we use, the, we're so used to these platitudes of, yeah, well, she was raped, but God is good and the outcome was great. So right. it's fine. You know, but I think um, it is important to sit with that um, because, you know, where we are in our culture, it's important to, um, you know, proximity is important. And if we're going to be proximate to pain, then we got to learn to sit in it, right? We got to learn to just be uncomfortable in it. And um, and it starts, you know, as Christians, it, it not necessarily starts, but it has to do also with, with scripture, with sitting in these uncomfortable passages. Um, and for me, you know, I actually recently just started, I was like, cause you know, I, I wrote a book and, and I did a lot of exegetical book, uh, excuse me, work in my book. Um, so I had spent like two or three years in the Bible, like really teasing it out. And I thought recently, you know what, I'm just going to start over in Genesis, not open a commentary, you know, just read it and mm. just, you know, sit in it. And, you know, if there's one specific thing that sticks out to me, I'll sit in it for a few days. Right. So I had started doing that. And actually, um, I'm reading through Genesis and and the story of Noah. And it was when God decided to, um, you know, to wipe everything out, you know, it was in that moment when God was like, everything was corrupt or whatever. And there's like this little verse, you know, and it talks about how the sons of man and and it's this really, you know, we don't know exactly what it was. And the sons of man were having relations with the daughters of, you know, what are the sons of God with the daughters of man. And it was this really weird thing. And I just remember always hearing like, you know, again, it was like, yeah, there were giants and women and, and it was this weird sexual thing. Anyway, it was corrupt and God (laughs) wanted to end, you know, it was like this weird, right. But I just remember reading through it again and it was, you know, something stood out to me that it was like, you know, they took whatever woman they wanted for Mm. themselves. And I thought, huh, you know, that part was never really highlighted. It was just like some sexual thing, weird thing was going on. And I thought, what if that was it, right? Like, what if Mm. that was it? And God was like, "Mm -mm, I don't like this, you know? I mean, who knows? But it was just sitting in that and letting something different stick out to me, a detail that had been overlooked, something that we had zipped through that I thought, what if that's a bigger deal than we've made it? Wow. Right. And so I started thinking through that. And, you know, as I'm reading, for example, and it was in the same sort of, you know, Bible reading, Bible study um, through my story with Diana. And I'm sitting there and, you know, and I'm saying, wow. We've always, you know, we haven't sat through this and thank God for, for movements like Me Too and things like that, where it's forced us, you know, to, to look at things and sit with things differently. But, 
you know, I just sat there and I said, you know what, this is heavy. And I think we need to sit in this. And, and yeah, so how do I, I think it just starts with slowing down a whole lot, um, slowing down a whole lot, particularly when we read scripture and not assuming that just because we've read something, we already know it, or it's all, you know, because I know these stories, like the back of my hand, right? I've heard them so many times, but I thought, wait a minute, let me just read through it and slow down and pretend I've never heard it before. What, what has changed in our culture? What has, what are some conversations that, you know, we've been having recently? What are some things that are causing other things to spark, you know, as I read this, what has changed? Um, so yeah, just slowing down, maybe starting there. I would assume that you, you have a book coming out, Abolita Faith, August 10. Mm-hmm. She has yes, a book, August 10th, coming out, Abolita Faith. And I would assume, I want you to tell us in your own words what that book is about and what we'll experience as we all run to Amazon right now and purchase it. <laughs> but w- I would assume that in that book, that's what you, you're doing is kind of slowing mm-hmm. down and challenging pre-held ideas. But you you tell us, what's the book about? Yeah. Um, so hopefully, yes, that's my, that's my goal. I do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I go through, um, you know, my grandmother's story of immigration. Um, and I go through just women in history, um, you know, just o- overlooked and unnamed women in history um, who have, um, you know, used their bodies or use their, and by that I mean, whether it's through protest or whether it's through, you know, alternate ways of being and knowing um, in the world and also uh, women in scripture. So I, I kind of go through women in history and in scripture and through my grandmother's story. And I, you know, I sort of argue one of the main questions I ask is, you know, what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? Mm-hmm. You know, and so there are so many overlooked women that have the greatest things to teach us about faith and spirituality and life, but it, they're not, you know, they never received a formal education or they haven't ever preached a sermon or even maybe even taught a Bible study, right? But through their lived experiences, um, through their embodied faith, they teach us, you know, some of the greatest nuggets about, you know, about spirituality, about God. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, my grandmother, she ran her own clothes making business from home. When she first came from Cuba, she worked at a clothes factory, um, as many women did when they first, or many Cuban women did when they first arrived to Miami. Um, and then eventually she was able to, you know, make clothes from home and that's how she provided for us. She was a widow and she provided for us, you know, through sewing and she made me all my clothes as a young uh, as a young kid. And, and I talk about how that, you know, that act of, of providing and of literally using her hands to create and, and provide and, and, um, yeah, and, uh, nurture us right Mm. through her hands. Like that is an act of, of God that is spirituality too. Right. Um, and I, I kind of, you know, mirror that story to the story of Tabitha, you know, in acts when, Tabitha dies and they go to resurrect her life. And I ask questions like, well, what was it about Tabitha's life that like, you know, literally she's one of the, I think there's only four other people besides Jesus that's resurrected in the new Testament. I mean, it's not super common Mm -hmm. to, you know, for someone to be resurrected. Like what was it about her life that they literally called Peter and said, resurrect her from the dead. Like, you know, and something that stood out to me as I'm, you know, wrestling with, with this Awelita faith and this Awelita theology and my grandmother's story is that, you know, when, when the women, when Peter uh, comes to her bedside, the women bring the tunics and say, look what she did for us. Look at what she made. Mm. And that to me, you know, the, the act of her, 
um, providing and creating for the women in her community was enough, you know, for her life. Her life was, you know, made her life so valuable. And of course, all life has value. But, but yeah, I mean, she was resurrected from the dead. And so, um, you know, I'm just looking at embodied ways of being and knowing um, that aren't intellectual, that aren't, you know, like I said, formal knowledge, but there are still forms of wisdom that uh, women that our ancestors that we possess in our bodies and, and yeah, and other ways of being and knowing. I just want to encourage everybody, if you are resonating at all with what you're hearing, I can tell you if you somebody who really appreciates a deep dive into theology and just loves scripture, you're going to want to pick up Kat's book. And so I, I encourage you to go directly right now, pause the podcast <laughs> if you need to onto Amazon and pre-order it. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. I want to read to you another tweet of yours. It says this, for me, the essence of Abuelita theology isn't that we can learn about faith and spirituality from poor, uneducated, minoritized women. It's that we have the most to learn from them. Their wells of wisdom overflow with stories of survival, strength, resistance, and persistence. Where did you first learn this? And can you tell us about the process of when you decided this is a book? Like, this isn't just something for me that I can talk about, but this is a book that I can share with the world. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, because I do remember that exact moment that I, you know, had that where it sort of clicked. Um, well, I I was actually in a homiletics class and um, I was preaching on Ruth. And, you know, there was so much as I was studying the story of Ruth. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my grandmother and my mother's story, mm. you know? Um, and it just was literally, you know, how, and, and it wasn't just their story, but it was such a familiar story in my community of, you know, the women who had to use creative, you know, ways and creative things and had to think outside the box in order to survive, mm. right? Because that is essentially, you know, Ruth and Naomi, they're like, let's see, what do we do now? Uh, okay, go glean over there because he's going to be there. And then maybe, you know, like right. they're trying to think of like, out of the box ways to ensure their survival because they had no men in their life to ensure, you know, um, at that point they had all died or whatever. So, um, so I'm thinking about this and I'm like, wow, this is a very common story in again, minoritized women where they have to, um, think of alternate ways to, um, make sure that they can make it to the next day. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of, 
studying through this and preaching through this. And I had been thinking about an Abuelita theology, you know, I had stumbled upon it in some writings and stuff and it re- really resonated with me. Um, and yeah, and it was in that moment, I, I sort of, con- I did, you know, in the sermon, I connected it to my, my grandmother and my mother's story. And, you know, all of a sudden, as after I finished preaching, different people throughout the class, I mean, we had white men, black women, Latino women. I mean, it was a very diverse class. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, like my grandmother, yes. Like that is so, you know, I, I really, you know, I resonate with that. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was this sort of woman and and actually she was the beacon that carried, you know, spirituality in my family. And 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 maybe it wasn't a biological grandmother, but it was also, oh, this woman who helped, you know, raise me or this or that, you know, uh, my aunt or, and, you know, it really, you know, that was sort of the moment that I thought, wait a minute, this connects with a lot of people mm-hmm. because a lot of us have, you know, this unrecognized over look theologian that we know of, um, whether biologically or just in our lives, right? Um, And that's, you know, as I started just really doing more and more research and looking throughout history, and I started realizing like, wait a minute, this is not just some like cute thing that I just thought of, like, this is a serious thing. Mm. And then again, I started digging through scripture and, and connecting these stories, realizing these are stories of survival, stories of strength, stories of persistence, stories of resistance. You know, the story of Rizba, how she puts her body on the line and protests her son's unjust murders for six months. I mean, it was an act of protest. And it didn't just like, she wasn't just protesting for the sake of protesting. It ended up bringing, um, there was a famine at the time and King David ended up noticing her protest. Mm-hmm. He inquires of God, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he writes the wrongs that Rizpah was protesting and the and rain comes and the right, famine's right. over. And I'm like, she changed the course of history. And half of the people that read the Bible do not know that right. or know her name. Right. right. And she changed the course of history. You know, and that is, again, very common. I mean, you have in the civil rights movement, you know, what sparked the one of the biggest moments in that was the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm -hmm. And that was started by a group of women, Mm -hmm. Joanne Robinson and her group, you know, so there you have this throughout history. And I'm realizing these are unrecognized and untold stories. Um, And we got to start telling them and we got to start, you know, like reminding folks that, hey, this is um, where a lot of these movements started. So, yeah, it was. Um, wrestling with my grandmother's story and it was talking to people about it and sharing it and, and also connecting it to scripture. And folks were like, Hey, like that's yes. Like I, I feel that I resonate with that. So I thought, let's do this, you know, let's make this into a book. And so, well, actually from there, I actually, um, every class that I took, I wrote all my papers connected to Abuelita theology. Um, so I got a lot of the exegetical work done before I officially wrote the book because I was just, you know, really all my papers were about it. And I was making sure I was hitting every angle theologically. Um, and yeah, so it just became became a thing. <laughs> I love your idea behind this book of telling stories of unnamed theologians in the Bible and also adding mothers, grandmothers, sisters. Is there a story you can tell us that really struck you? Maybe it's in the book. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's somebody you know or a story somebody else told you that just really struck you of this is the core essence of what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I can share a story of one of actually it's, it's in the book and I'll share a piece of it, but it's um, a part of my grandmother's story. So my grandfather passed away um, before I was born and they think it was just complications from the trauma that he had gone through. Um, he, um, it, what they call is a, a balsero in Miami. So he actually arrived in Miami through like a small raft and he kind of just oh, wow. left in the middle of the night and yeah, you know, sort of just rode his way to Miami. 
Um, so he, he died a few years later just from heart issues. And they think that it was just, you know, complications and trauma and just, you know, all these things anyway. So my grandmother was a widow and, um, for the majority of her life. And one day at church, you know, she met this guy and he just fell in love with my grandmother. He was also a widow and he, you know, same sort of story. You know, they, they arrived from Cuba, his wife passes away. And so he just falls in love with my grandmother and, you know, my grandmother for years, would say like, no, you know, my only love is, is Robert, her first husband. And mm-hmm. so she never wanted to marry him, but they stayed like best friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was just, it was, it was the cutest thing, you know? And as, and when I was growing up, like we all knew he was in love with her. We knew they were like best friends, but we knew her answer was no. So, you know, I was, I remember I was like in college around the time and he had fallen ill. He he had gotten sick and he was in the hospital and I remember we went to go visit him and he was just looking so pitiful and, and he wasn't close to his family, right? Mm-hmm. He, for some, for whatever reason, you know, his family was in another state and they didn't really keep in touch. So we were it basically. I mean, we had sort of brought him into our family for, for the last, I mean, like 20 years, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and he was like sort of my surrogate grandfather. So um, he had fallen ill and we thought he was going to die. And, you know, I just remember being like, oh my goodness, like, what are we going to do when he passes? And it was just this really hard time. And he ends up getting a little bit better enough to go home. And at this point he is in his early nineties and, um, he, you know, he, 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 they release him from the hospital. And when they get to the house, my grandmother, you know, she kind of, she tells us first, she's like, you know, I, I'm going to marry him. Like, mm. I'm going to propose to him. Oh. And we were like, whoa. Yeah. We were like, what do you mean? You know? And she tells him like, let's do it. Let's get married. And he was just over the moon. <laughs> they had a little ceremony, oh. you know, in the, you know, in our, in their living room. I mean, it was the cutest thing. And back then I thought, oh, you know, she just realized she loved him. Like how cute, you know, like it was this whole, oh, romantic love and, oh, And I end up finding out, you know, obviously, as I got a little older, that the only reason she decided to marry him was because he had no family. And she, because of her strong Catholic faith, she couldn't bring, he couldn't move in without them being married. (laughs) So she married him so that she could sign for him. God forbid anything were to happen to him because he was obviously close to dying. She wanted to ensure that he would be, you know, financially, like legally, that everything would be set for him, that, you know, everything would be okay, that he wouldn't have to deal with not having a family or not have to, you know, she could make decisions for him. Um, And so that she can just take care of him. He can move in, you know, officially and she can just take care of him. And I just remember like once I realized, you know, that part of the story, I realized like, yes, like this is an example of what it means Mm. to do things when it comes to survival, to make decisions based off survival, um, to sacrifice for your family, um, you know, to, to, you know, she put yourself, she had put herself in the position of being twice widowed, you know, and taking care of someone in their last, whatever few years of life Mm. is not something that, you know, that's not a easy decision or a simple, I mean, that was really like, all right, like he spent the last 20 years, like really, you know, loving me and being there for me. And this is what I'm going to do at the end of his life. And it was hard. I mean, the end of his life was really hard. And she stuck around and she did it. And, and I like to say that she shamed the system, right? She literally was like her whole life. She said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to marry him because my first love. And then at the end she decided, you know what? Like the system says that I can't sign for him or there's to that. Well, I'm going to shame the system. I'm going to marry him for legal purposes. And Mm -hmm. I just love that. Um, how she, you know, took, she used the system for her, 
for for love, for sacrifice, right. for whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that that was um, just a very special um, example of Abuelita faith for me. Where did things change for you? Or, or maybe the question is, where did it start? So something I like to ask people when they come on, just because I know our primary audience of people listening are, are people who are trying to be in the space that you are in right now. Can you remember back to where you're like, I've got these ideas. I feel like mm-hmm. maybe God is calling me to this. And maybe, you know, I don't have a lot of followers. I don't have a lot of money, but I just feel like I'm supposed to do this. Can you walk us back to that place for you and tell us where did your story kind of start? Where did your story even start? I should have asked this in the beginning with theology. (laughs) Where did you decide, you know what, I'm going to step into this? Yeah. um, Yeah. That's a good question. I went, obviously never planned it. Um, So I, you know, I was working as a teacher and a behavior therapist and um, I decided that I, I came into uh, evangelicalism later in my life. I by later in my life, I just mean my early twenties. I wasn't a child. I was an adult. Um, and I, I, you know, I just fell in love with, you know, the Bible and I just fell in love with, you know, ministry and all these things. Um, but I had my career, you know, I was teaching, I was, um, doing behavior therapy on the, on the, well, on the side, but also, um, and yeah. And I just was like, you know what, I'll go to seminary and I'll, you know, sort of pursue that because I'm really passionate about this and I'm falling in love with it. And I'll just, you know, I'll just do that for fun, you know? I had always loved to write and um, I had been blogging at the time. So I thought this will be great. You know, I will learn about God so I can write more about God. Mm. Um, but I never planned to give up my career. Um, uh, what, what, what was my career at the time? So, yeah, I mean, I just sort of started jugg- juggling both and I kept writing. Um, at that time, I went through a huge shift theologically. I, um, you know, my view on women changed and my view on race and all these things just started really shifting. The world was shifting. Um, and, you know, the more that I kept digging into the Bible and into scripture and the more that I, you know, my world just kept opening. Um, so I left the denomination that I was in and I left, you know, just the space that I was in, t- t- you know, seeking out a different space that I might fit better in. And I wrote about it. I just decided I'm going to write about it. I'm going to write about my experiences. Um, you know, like I said, I had a very humble little blog. Like it wasn't you know, just my friends and people <laughs> that knew me would read it. <laughs> and I just, I wrote about it and I said, hey, like I'm leaving this sort of field of thought and this theological space um, because of this, 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 this. And it sort of just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's sort of in a good way, but not in a great way. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people were very angry with me. Um, I got a ton of like hate messages, you know, the whole nine. Um, I was called a heretic, you know, and all, all the things. Um, but I just felt like, you know, I, I needed to be honest about where I was in my journey. And, and yeah, and I mean, and that was really, to be quite frank, that was like the, the catalyst to... Um, because so many people were so curious and they were like, well, talk to me about women in the Bible. So people kept asking me more and more questions. So I was like, fine, I'll keep blogging about it. So I just kept blogging about, you know, the Bible and women, and this is how this shifted. And this is, you know, what I learned about Phoebe, or this is what I learned about, you know, this person in the Bible. And from there, I just, you know, kept writing and something that, um, I think, you know, your initial question is, you know, how did you sort of get to this space? Um, you know, when I had an idea, I would just sort of run with it, even if no one was really listening or paying attention. And then I just kept, you know, for example, my podcast is a perfect example. 
you know, I, as I was wrestling with Abuelita faith and Abuelita theology and, you know, overlooked women, um, at that time, I didn't have, you know, I didn't know of a lot of podcasts by women of color for women of women of color. And I really wanted one. Like I, I was dying to find one. I mean, I know Amina Brown back then was doing that, but there wasn't much else. And so I thought, you know what? I really want to hear a podcast by women of color for women of color. So I'm just going to start, I'm just going to do a little 10 part mini series. I never, you know, plan to do anything more than that, but I thought, you know, people can have 10 episodes to hear about what really mm-hmm. cool, like on the ground women are doing. Right. Um, and so I did, I, you know, I started with the first one and the second one. I had no idea what I was doing. If you listen to my first episode, it is terrible. <laughs> There's like so much background noise. It's just not good. Um, and it was like that for a while. <laughs> like I would get reviews of like, I love your podcast, but like, can you step up the, the sound game? And I'm like, no, because I don't know how. <laughs> um, but then I just was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to stick to it. People are listening. Even if it's 15 people, 20 people, you know, it's touching those 20 people and I'm just going to keep doing it. So I just kept doing it. I mean, it's been almost four years and I'm, or maybe three, three or four, it's been a while already, you know, and I'm just still going, you know, I'm still like just making these episodes and they're not perfect, you know, and I'm just sort of figuring it out. And I think that just, um, you know, I like to talk about, I like to say this a lot that I, I, something that I am proud of, of my work is that I've just stuck to it, right? Mm. I've just stuck to it, even when not a lot of people were engaging with it. I just stuck to it. Um, you know, when I had a good idea, I just tweeted it and then I did it again. And then I did it again. You know, um, if I had something that I thought was interesting to, I just blogged about it, even if no one maybe was reading my blog at the time, but I kept blogging about it. And I kept, you know, um, yeah. And then eventually like, it sort of just, t- you know, took off or took a world of, you know, world of its own type of thing, um, with my blog and then with the, 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 excuse me, the, uh, the protagonistas, my podcast, and then with my writing and then, um, yeah. And then my book. So yeah. So wait, tell us, tell us the name of your podcast and where can people listen? Yeah. The protagonistas, the protagonistas. Um, and you can listen, you know, on iTunes, anywhere, Podbean, Spotify, it's all on there. Um, and yeah, the podcast is, like I said, I just interview women of color in church leadership and theology that are just, you know, doing cool things, whether it's pastoring or writing or, you know, preaching or whatever, um, or just have really cool things to share. Um, yeah. And I try and, like I said, speak to just everyday women, right? I'm not trying to necessarily get the ones with the biggest followings. I just want to hear right. people who have like really cool things to say. Um, and interesting stories. You know, I just interviewed uh, a, a young Korean American girl who um, who does research on trans. She's a trans uh, racial adoptee, a transnational mm. adoptee, and she talks about her experience as an adoptee. And I think that that's that's an overlooked story right. or an overlooked narrative that we don't hear a lot from. And so that's what I'm passionate about. Well, I just love you, Kat. And I, I, I really <laughs> hope that people support you. I have a feeling that your book is going to do very, very well. I have oh, that, I that so. gut instinct, <laughs> but I really do hope people look for you and follow you. I think your voice is so important. And something else that you just embody is doing it because of the work. And I think mm-hmm. that that's largely missing from culture today is people who are mm-hmm. just wanting to do the work. So I want to affirm you. Kat Armas is the author of Abuelita Faith. She is also a social media influencer and blogger, and you should absolutely look for her online to be challenged, inspired, and moved. Her book is coming out August 10th, but you can pre-order it right now. Thank you so much, Kat.
We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I scour the Viral Jesus hashtags on all of our social channels and look for a message from someone who maybe you haven't heard of yet, but you should certainly be following as they grow viral. Today, we talk to social media strategist Raquel Mentor. So I thought it would be fun for this growing viral to talk to Raquel Mentor, who actually runs my social media. So she's a social media strategist, and I just thought it would be fun to get some tips from her on how you can get into maybe this type of work, what she finds difficult about running other people's social media platforms, and everything that she's learned. Raquel, I am so glad to have you on Growing Viral. Tell us, how did you get into social media management? Yeah, so I actually kind of got in more or less by accident. I was working for a small southern, um, a small summer camp south of Indianapolis, um, Timber Ridge Camp. Shout out! Um, <laughs> it um, they needed somebody to basically just post pictures to their Facebook, but I kind of took some creative liberties to not just post pictures, but other stuff that would kind of engage their content um, and get other people to kind of just you know, be on their, on their platforms more. And since then, uh, their overseeing religious organization also had me jump on to help them out. And it wasn't until like last year during the pandemic that I was like, okay, I got to take a leap and, you know, just kind of make what I do more public and not just do this for this, um, one, one nonprofit and just really, you know, help small businesses because that's kind of been, my family's history, my dad ran his own small business and, you know, it, it just, it, it felt very like, you know, continuing on the line of a little small mm. business people. <laughs> what do you think is the hardest part? Cause I can't fathom running my own social media is exhausting. I don't know how many different yeah. clients you have at once. What is the hardest part about managing all these different accounts? Um, I think the hardest part is, like for working on behalf of someone is, is helping them see what their goal should Mm. be. Because I think when somebody wants help, they're thinking, Oh, I want to go viral or I want to, you know, get this many amount of followers, or I just, you know, I want this in this amount of time, but usually social media is, it's never just reaching an X amount of followers. It's never, you know, reaching an X amount of likes, you know, you're building yes. a community and you're building value and people often don't exactly know how to bring in value. They just kind of want an end goal of numbers, but they don't necessarily know what content to put out or how to put it out best. And then of course you have the part where, uh, people don't want to be limited to just one small part on their social media uh, because of course nobody is just right. you know their I don't know their their soaps <laughs> or right. you know whatever whatever small thing that they're they're posting about you know you're never just your your nature or your travel and they're like well I don't I don't want it to be just that I want it to be my life and I mean, yes you know you're not just that but if you're if you're trying to bring value to somebody you're looking for somebody with a very specific interest. And to hold their interest, you have to have that one thing be a repetitive thing showing up over and over. Um, so it's it's hard to help people see that from time to time. 
how can people contact you if they're trying to grow their small business or look for somebody to help give them strategy tips for their social media? Um, well, they can find me on Facebook, Mentor Marketing, or you can visit my website, mentormarketing.org. We hope you will not rest until you find Raquel Mentor and support her voice, her work, and her ministry. Join me in supporting her growing viral community. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Join us next week as we talk to the reality television and influencer sensation who starred on season 20 of The Bachelor and is the author of Alone in Play site. That's right, Ben Higgins. See you next week on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.